Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. Today, for your listening pleasure, we have an archive show, first published as a newspaper column and podcast episode sometime in the last 10 years. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy it. This story was first published on May 30th of 2010 under the headline Rajneesh Puram. Did it almost turn into an Oregon Jonestown? It's part four in our four-part series about Rajneesh Puram and the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. Here we go. The story of a small and secretive cult group of people deciding to go out in a blaze of glory rather than submitting to outside authority is a familiar one these days, harking back to the infamous story of Jonestown, Guyana in 1978. Familiar, yes, but outrageous enough that most people think can't happen here. Yet if you ask certain law enforcement people who were on duty in the mid-1980s, they will disagree with that. Some might even tell you that in their opinion, it almost did. In late 1985, after the public split between the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh and his erstwhile spokeswoman, Ma'anan Sheila Silverman, the Bhagwan invited police to enter Rajneeshpuram to gather evidence against her. What they found was chilling enough, but in the context of the Rajneesh group's earlier predictions of catastrophe in Armageddon, became truly frightening. They found two laboratories set up to produce biological and chemical agents that could certainly be used as weapons. They also found some books detailing how that might be done. Deadly Substances, Handbook for Poisoning, The Perfect Crime and How to Commit It, and Let Me Die Before I Wake. Those were some of the titles. Well, a few days later, the Bhagwan started getting less cooperative. Newspaper and TV people poured in from all over the world. Law enforcement people started to complain that they weren't being allowed to do the job that the Bhagwan had invited them in to do. Then came the spark that could have blown the whole thing up. A court in Portland issued a sealed indictment against the Bhagwan on immigration violation charges. This presented law enforcement officers with a serious problem. It was now their duty to go and get him. But for some time, the Rajneesh Peace Patrol had been furnished with particularly warlike equipment, including the Colt AR-15 rifles that were the civilian equivalent of the U.S. Army's main weapon. Officers had been there long enough working on the Sheila investigation to know the place was well-armed and arranged for defense. A few weeks before, the Bhagwan had announced that his followers no longer had to wear the distinctive red robes that would, in a worst-case scenario, mark them as members. Police in the compound both investigators invited in by the Bhagwan and undercover agents posing as followers, warned darkly that any attempt to serve a warrant on the Bhagwan at the compound would probably turn into a, quote, bloody mess. Luckily, the Bhagwan solved the problem for them by chartering a Learjet and trying to flee to Bermuda. Thus, instead of having to invade a heavily armed compound with an enormous SWAT team, authorities simply had to dispatch two U.S. Marshals to intercept him in North Carolina during a stop for fuel and pick him up. Authorities later learned, according to Pinterich's account, that the Peace Patrol did in fact have a contingency plan for how to respond to an attempt to arrest the Vaguan. It involved encircling the leader with a human shield of women and children while security forces shot to kill. 
Again, this is according to Pinterich, who makes no secret of his hostility to this sect. But if it's true, and if all the participants cooperated as planned, it would be hard to imagine something like this ending well for anyone. The Vagwan's arrest was the end of Oregon's Rajneesh experience. Well, sort of. Sheila, arrested in Germany and extradited, pleaded guilty to several poisoning and arson attempts and was sentenced to 20 years in prison in order to leave the country immediately upon serving her time. The Bhagwan was simply deported, with a prison sentence suspended on condition that he leave immediately and not return. Sheila, after being represented by powerful and expensive legal teams both in Germany and the U.S., suddenly became unable to afford to pay $270,000 of her fine. There had been $57 million in cash and hard portable assets, mostly jewelry, on the Bhagwan's books. Now there was no sign of it, and to this day authorities have no idea what happened to it. Maybe it was quietly embezzled by one of the Sanyasins. Perhaps the Bhagwan managed somehow to smuggle it out of the country for later use in building his luxurious meditation resort in India. Or maybe it's simply buried out there in the high country of north-central Oregon waiting for someone to come and dig it up. We'll probably never know. That's the story. There's an afterword to it as well. And this is where things get strange, unexplained, and maybe kind of creepy. Sheila was released from federal prison in 1988 after serving 29 months of her sentence. She immediately married a sannyasin from Switzerland, Urs Bernstiel, and left for Switzerland with them, leaving Oregon authorities in the lurch for more than $60,000 in court-ordered fees and restitutions. As a spouse of a Swiss citizen, Sheila was eligible for residency, and after three years of marriage, she'd be eligible for citizenship. And Switzerland, in particular, very seldom cooperates with other nations' attempts to prosecute its citizens. Sheila had been originally arrested in late 1985, so the marriage would have taken place in late 1988 or early 1989. In 1992, Bernstiel died of AIDS, which Sheila told Willamette Week magazine he contracted after the two of them became separated. Thus, Bernstiel apparently, in the course of three or four years, got married, got separated, contracted the HIV virus, developed full-blown AIDS, and died. A timetable without parallel so far as I know in the history of human experience with this disease when it is naturally acquired. I've been unable to find any explanation of or even reference to the fact that a disease that usually takes a decade to even manifest itself killed Bernstiel in less than three years. It must be pointed out here that Sheila had a particular fear of the AIDS virus, stemming from Rajneesh Puram's experience with the Share a Home program in which great numbers of hard-living homeless men were invited into the compound in an attempt to take over Wasco County. Sheila also had a history of dabbling in harmful biological agents, most especially the cultured salmonella bacteria with which the salmon bar in the Dalles was doped. So far as I know, there is no evidence that Sheila had anything to do with her late husband's death. But the pattern of facts in this case, when laid out like this, point to the possibility of something remarkably dark. Key sources in this story have included works by Bill Gulick, Wynne McCormick, and Peter Paltridge. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening, and I do hope you enjoyed it. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. Check out our hub page at offbeatoregon.com to explore all the other things we do or to find full citations and visuals that go with today's show. 
this podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license. For details of that, see offbeatorgan.com slash cc. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Offbeat Organ History episodes are uploaded every weekday morning at around 6 a.m., so it'll be a couple of days before you get your next fix. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day and the subsequent weekend with good stuff. Bye now. Bye now.